Well, we are excited to, to continue to dig into this series. We have been working through the book of Galatians with one another, and over the past few weeks, we've dived into chapter one and two. We're looking at a letter written to the church in Galatia who has walked away from the gospel that was given to them. But we see that Paul is coming in and he is walking with them, and the life of Paul itself is something that is truly incredible as he goes and he tells a little bit more of his story. Today, we're actually going to be taking a quick detour out of the book of Galatians, and if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up to Acts 9, and what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at one of the most important conversion stories in history. And I love conversion stories. One of the things that I got to do very early on as a staff member at this church was I got to read through all the biographies of everyone that went through the weekender here at Two Cities. And as I got to read those, one of the things that I saw is that people came to Christ in all kinds of different ways. I got to read all kinds of different stories. And one thing that we know about conversion stories is that they're all different. But here's what we also know to be true, that every single conversion that happens is something that's radical. And I remember when I was a student, I was sitting under the preaching of someone, and he asked us, everyone in the room, he said, hey, if you were radically saved, I want you to raise your hand right now. And just a couple people around the room raised their hand, and he looked confused, which was odd to me. He said, hey, if you're a Christian, can would you just go ahead and raise up your hands? And so we all did, and he said, here's what's true, and here's what you need to understand. Every single salvation is radical. Because the inward nature of it is this. God has brought you from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Now that is something radical that only Christ can do. And so the inward nature of it is always radical, but the external form of it can happen in different ways. You know, one of the ways that it can happen is it can just be pretty low-key for some people or it can be progressive. That's my own story. When I came to faith in Jesus Christ when I was eight, I didn't hear the audible voice of God. I didn't have anyone, uh, man, just slap me in the face and tell me to believe. I didn't have a thunderbolt strike me. You know, it was something that was slow and progressive. It took years of just being in the church and around Christians for me to grasp and understand the gospel. And that's what it is like for many people. But for other people, their conversion stories can be dramatic. It can be something that's sudden and quick. It can be brought on by some event. Maybe it's the death of someone or you getting a um, biopsy report. You know, other people, we hear about stories around the world where they have a visual a revelation and a vision of Jesus Christ that's calling them to put their faith in him. And so we know that it happens differently for different people. For some people, it's God flipping on the light switches all at once, blinding you with it. Other times, it's just slowly pushing up the dimmer switch for us to slowly realize those things. Well, today, as we dive into Acts 9, verse 1, we're going to be looking at someone that God flipped the light switches on. And so in verse 1, we see it start with this, but Saul... And so who's Saul? You know, we've been talking about Paul. Well, in order to understand Paul the apostle, we first have to understand who he was before that. He was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus went on to be one of the most important men in history. And I don't exaggerate when I say that because his life and impact was profound. When we think about his impact on scripture, if you take Paul out of the New Testament, you lose the New Testament. Because here's what's true, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. The book of Acts, half of it, more than half of it actually, is about his life. And even the two other greatest books that he didn't write in the scripture of the New Testament, Acts and Luke, were written by a guy that Paul discipled and pastored throughout his life. And so in terms of scripture, Saul is a very important person. In terms of theology, 
Paul, Saul, who I'm going to be using interchangeably during the message today, he was considered the first theologian of the Christian church and considered by almost everyone as the most important theologian in understanding God and the life of Jesus Christ. He's also incredibly important when it comes to mission because he almost single-handedly was the responsible for the mass spreading of the Christian church in the very early days of its existence. But to understand that's who we see when we look at the Apostle Paul, we first have to understand who he was before that as Saul of Tarsus because there is a drastic difference that we see there. The first time we meet Saul of Tarsus is a couple chapters earlier in Acts, and we see him at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Stephen was a leader and deacon in the early church who was very outspoken of his faith in Jesus Christ. And one day, the Jewish leaders came and brought him before them to make a defense for his belief in Jesus Christ. And what Stephen did was he used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to them and call them to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. But what they did instead was they decided that they were going to stone Stephen to death. And so as these leaders got ready to do it, it said that they laid down their coats before a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And what that act tells us is that Saul was the one who was in charge of these executions. It was his plot to kill Stephen. He was letting the other people do the dirty work, but he was the the organizing mind behind it. Think Osama bin Laden. He didn't crash the planes himself, but he was the mastermind behind it all. That is who Saul is. And this is just the beginning of a great persecution that's to come. It's a spark that lights this flame because immediately after this, Saul spreads the persecution. They begin going through the city of Jerusalem, dragging men and women out of their homes to put them in prison to be executed. It gets so bad that Christians start to flee the city and move to other countries out of fear for this man named Saul of Tarsus. Which brings us to Acts 9, chapter 1. It says, But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, and that's this faraway city, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and the way is the first name that was actually given to the Christian church. They were known as the way. And so if they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Which brings us to the first big idea that God has for us here, and it's this, that God can save anyone. God can save anyone. Because here's what we learn about Paul in these just two simple verses here. Number one, we see that Paul is ravaging. Saul and his persecution are escalating. He is not simply satisfied with stamping out the Christian church in Jerusalem. He wants to stamp it out everywhere. We're talking about religious genocide. And he is very good at fulfilling the threats that he makes. And you notice that it says here that he's breathing threats and murder. Here's what that means. It means that persecution was the air that this man breathed. It's what's sustaining him. It's what's keeping him going. It's what he's living for. That is how ravaging Saul of Tarsus is. Number two, he's relentless. It's that he's traveling to Damascus. This is a city that's 150 miles away. Think about him as a bounty hunter traveling to drag in these people that he's going after. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. What would you be willing to travel 150 miles for on foot or on donkey? It'd have to be something that you're pretty passionate about, right? 
Well, that's how passionate Saul is about killing Christians, that he's willing to travel all this way to do this. He is relentless. But the question is, why is he so intent on stamping out the church? Why is he so intent on going to great lengths to do this? Well, leads us to the third realization about him is he is very religious. The reason that Saul is doing this is because he actually believes that he is doing God a favor. He thinks that he is fulfilling God's mission by wiping out this sect of the church. And so he's doing it for God out of religious sense, but it's also probably a little bit for himself. Because here's something that's interesting. The the Saul of Tarsus would have understood the gospel better than most people. And he understood the gospel says that you can only have salvation by grace through faith. And here's what that did. It effectively made his whole ministry, his whole life worthless. It was garbage. It knocked the props out on which he could boast. And so this is Saul. And the question is, is he sincere about this? And he is very sincere. He actually thinks that what he is doing is right and it is good. And so is sincerity all that important? And I know that this is a question that we wrestle with a lot today. Some people think that it's not so much about the faith, it's about the, insir- the sincerity that we have. There's a question that we say or, or something that we say in culture. It says, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But here's the truth. Sincerity is not enough. You can be sincere about something, but you can be sincerely wrong at the same time. I remember when I was a kid, I sincerely thought if I jumped off my top bunk and flapped my arms hard enough that I was going to be able to fly. And I was sincerely wrong because gravity showed me that that is simply not true. Steve Jobs, when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, ignored the advice of his surgeons because he sincerely believed that if he changed his diet and meditated more, that he was going to be fine. And he found out that even though he was sincere, he was sincerely wrong. You can be sincere about your atheism. You can be sincere about your Buddhism. You can be sincere about your Mormonism. But at the end of the day, you are going to stand before a holy God, and no matter how sincere you were about those things, you are going to find out that you are wrong. And so sincerity alone does not save. When it comes to salvation, it's the object of our sincerity that is the most important. And so that brings us back to Saul. Here we have a guy who's ravaging He's relentless, and he's a religious zealot. Essentially what he is is a genocidal terrorist. And I don't care who you are. If you look at this man, none of us would assume that this is someone who becomes a Christian. We look at him and we would say, that is never going to happen. There is no way because he is the worst of the worst. He's like a Harvey Weinstein or a Jeffrey Epstein of our day. We would never believe a man like that could come to faith in Christ. He's too radically opposed to Christianity. And not only that, he's very public about it. Someone who is that loud and proud about opposing Christianity could never turn and become the very thing that he's railing against. But here's what's incredible. God steps in, and Saul goes from being the chief antagonist of the church to the chief protagonist for the church. He goes from being the chief opponent to the chief proponent. He moves from being the one who tried to stop the spread of the gospel to being the one who is widely responsible for the spread of the gospel. And here's the truth that many of us need to hear today is that this sort of person can get saved. God can do it. That's why this story is in here for us to give us a sense of hope. And some of you who are watching this today maybe need to hear this for yourself. 
Maybe some of you who are hearing this message today need to hear this for someone else in your life that God has placed around you. Here's a question. Who do you think that God can't save? Who is that person that comes to your mind right now? Again, maybe it's yourself. Maybe you think, I cannot see a situation that I ever become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure why you think that. Maybe it's something that you've done. Maybe you're too far gone in your own mind. Maybe you can't go back from who you were before. But you need to see that God took a man who was breathing threats and murder against his church and turned him into a child of God. Because you know what? Saul's stuff was not too big for the cross. Your stuff is not too big for the cross. It doesn't matter what it is. And for the Christian who, who's hearing this and you're thinking about someone else, who have you written off? Who do you think that they're too far, too far gone from God? Well, I want to tell you today, nobody is too far gone. God can save anyone. And so we want you to go from this message today and hope and believe in what God can do because God is more powerful than you can imagine and he can save even the worst of sinners. And that brings us to our second big idea, which is this. God gets what he wants. God gets what he wants. Look at me in verse three. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And what we're gonna see about this light is that it's Jesus Christ who's known in the Bible as the light of the world. And what Jesus is doing is he is coming into Paul's darkness, and he is showing him his spiritual state. And some of us need this exact same thing to happen today. We need the light shown in our light, or in our life, because, man, many of us have been hiding in darkness for so long. We have been running from God, or maybe you are in Christ, but there are things that you are trying to keep in the dark. Well, what God demands of us is to put all of ourselves, everything about us, into the light, because it's only there that we can experience freedom and salvation. And then we see this, and falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And when he says Lord here, he's not saying Lord as in God. It's more of the equivalent for sir because he doesn't know who he's talking to. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Saul visibly saw this person that he was talking to, but he doesn't know that it's Jesus. He's never met him before. And so he asks him, who are you? And here's the response he gets. He said to him, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And this has to be a shock for Saul because what did Saul think about Jesus? He thought he was a dead guy. Dead guys don't just show up and start having conversations with you alongside of the road. And so this changes everything for Saul. The significance of this is incredibly important because here's four things that Saul comes to understand about Jesus in his encounter with him on the Damascus Road. Number one, Jesus considers any attacks against the church an attack against him because persecution is a big deal to Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't just see the church as some it or a building. It's his people and he intimately relates to him. To the church. We see throughout scripture the metaphor that's used for the relationship between Christ and the church is that between a husband and a wife. And I can tell you, if you mess with my wife, Kelly, I am going to be furious because I relate to her so personally. In fact, there was someone who gave her a hard time a little while back, and I had to do everything in my power to not get on the phone because it was so personal to me that you are attacking my wife. 
because every blow that is given here on earth is felt in heaven by Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like when you persecute the church. You are persecuting him. And maybe here's the good news that you need to hear today. If that's you, maybe you're experiencing that. Maybe you're feeling isolated by the people around you. Maybe you're feeling attacked. Maybe you're feeling cast aside because of what you believe. You're not alone in that. Everything that you are feeling, Jesus Christ is feeling too. And you can know that you are not sitting in that by yourself because Christ loves you like he loves his bride. And he cares about whatever is happening to you. And here's what we also have to say about this. There is no separation between our love for Christ and our commitment to the church. Because you can't simply say something like, hey, Jesus, I love you, but I kind of hate your church. What that sounds like is if you come up to me and say, hey, Caleb, I love you, man. Can we hang out more? But by the way, can you leave your wife at home? I, I just don't like her. She's kind of a sleazeball, okay? Like how offensive would that be? And that's how offensive it is to Jesus when you say that you love him but hate his church. And this is important because we live in a city, unfortunately, where a lot of people assent to a love for Christ but are only marginally involved in the church at best. And so here's what we need to see out of this is that there is no question at all based on Christ's relationship to his church, based on what we see in scripture, that each and every Christian should be very involved in a local church. You need to join the church. You need to get involved in a ministry. You need to be a contributing member. And we do this through the thick and thin because we know that the the bride of Christ is broken. We are still sinful, but because of Christ's love that he has for his church, we should fight through those things and work through those things in forgiveness and mercy and grace so that we can love Jesus Christ by being a part of his bride. The second thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus pursues us before we pursue him. Before you ever pursued Jesus, he was pursuing you. Before you ever desired Jesus, he was desiring you. One of my favorite examples of this is from a hero of mine, C.S. Lewis. Before he became a Christian, he was an atheist literature professor at Oxford. And he often wrote about his conversion experience, which to him was a very painful thing. This is what he wrote about coming to faith in Christ. He called himself the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. Drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. That doesn't sound like a man who is pursuing God, is it? He also said this, did I search for God? Sure, like a mouse searches for a cat. I imagine that C.S. Lewis and Saul had some pretty good conversations about their conversions when they met each other in heaven. Here's how Saul described his own relationship with Christ at the time. He's given his testimony later on in Acts in verse chapter 26. He says this, and Jesus talking to him. Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? What's, what's Jesus talking about there? Well, a goad is farm language, and farmers would use oxen to plow their fields, and on occasion, Oxen are not the most motivated creatures to do what you want them to do, and so farmers had to invent this device called a goad stick, and on the end of that stick, it would have a pointy end, and when the oxen were not motivated to move and do what the farmers wanted them to do, they would take the goad and use that pointy end to stick it in their rear to get them going, and that would usually work, but sometimes oxen would get pretty upset about that, and what they would do is when you poked them with that, they would kick against it. And what ended up happening is it ended up hurting them far more than it was ever meant to. And it's 
what Jesus says that he was doing to Saul. He says, hey, I was goading you. I was pricking your conscience. I was trying to open up your eyes to something. And here's a couple of ways that we believe that Jesus was doing that with Saul. Well, Saul believed, knew the scriptures better than probably most people in his time. And he would have known about the Messiah who was to come. He knew about the life of Jesus, even though he had never met him. He knew enough about his life to say, this is the man who is fulfilling the prophecies that I see in Scripture. This is the Messiah that was promised. And so God was pricking him. He was goading him to see that this was true, and he kept fighting against it. He also fought against the death of Stephen. God would have used that to prick his conscience because when Stephen died, he died with love and forgiveness in his heart. And God would have used that to be pricking the conscience and saying, stop fighting me, Saul. Stop running from me. And here's the question that we each have to ask ourselves is how is Christ goading you today? Where is God pricking your conscience and you are just not listening to him? What are you trying to just explain away about yourself or your life? What are you trying to ignore? Or think about this. Think about the conversations that maybe your spouse or your friends keep having with you over and over and over again, but you keep fighting against it. How are you kicking against the goads that God has given you to just hurt yourself more and more? But here's the question. What would it be like if our church stopped when we experience that in our life? that goading, that pricking of our conscience, instead of running from it or fighting it, we ask ourselves, God, what is it that you want? And how can I believe you when you say this? How can I change this in my life right now? Can you imagine what kind of difference that would make in your own life? If you did that, what kind of experience, what kind of difference would that make in your families? If every single person in our church did this, over a 1,000 people saying, what is it, Lord? What can I do? And obeyed him. What kind of impact would that have on our city? Because the goad is a gift. It's a reminder to us that God is pursuing us, even when we don't pursue him. The third thing we learn about Jesus is this. Jesus answers our prayers for the lost. Jesus answers our prayers for the lost people because as Stephen was being murdered, he prayed that Jesus would save and forgive the people who were doing this to him. And so who is he praying for? He's praying for Saul. And God answers that prayer. Here's a question. Who do you need to be praying for? Who is the person who is far from God but close to you that you say, I could never see them coming to faith in Christ? What would it look like for you to start praying for that person right now? Or maybe it's the question for you is this. Who have you stopped praying for that you need to start praying for once again? Who do you need to start praying for once again? Would you do it consistently and never give up because we see God answers those prayers? Or maybe for some of you, here's what God's inviting you to do. Who was the person that you need to thank today because they prayed for you? Some of you had people who were praying for you for years or decades, and you coming to faith in Jesus Christ was an answer to that person's faithfulness in prayer. And so we can have hope because Jesus answers our prayers for lost people. And the fourth thing we see about Christ is that Jesus saves us by grace alone. And we look at Saul's writings and all throughout scriptures after this, and he firmly grasps this, that there was nothing that he did to, conf- to bring his own salvation about. 
He couldn't contribute to it. He couldn't add to it. It was only by grace alone. It was a free gift of God given to him at Christ's expense. He knew that he was a wretch, completely worthless of it, but received it anyway. That's what it looks like to be a Christian who understands grace. We understand there's nothing that we bring. We are just wretches who get God's grace. John Newton, who wrote the the hymn Amazing Grace, understood this very well. He came to Christ while he was a slave trader. Again, a wretch, the worst of the worst. But that's why he penned in his hymn the line, he saved a wretch like me. That is what a person says who understands the grace that we have in salvation. And some of us don't like that. Some of us want to fight against that because we feel like we are good people that God just makes better people. And that's why you can look at some of the hymnals in some of the churches or denominations in our city, and when you look at that hymn, it doesn't say, saved a wretch like me. They've changed it to say, saved and strengthened me, or saved and set me free. Because those are people who don't understand the radical nature, the scandalous grace that God has given us in our salvation. And so let's be like Paul. Let's be like John Newton say, Christ, I recognize your grace that has saved a wretch like me. And that's what Paul experiences. That's what Saul experiences on the road. And so what is his response? We see in another um, testimony that he's telling later on in Acts 22, he says, I said this, what shall I do, Lord? And this is the second time he uses Lord, but he's using it properly now. He's not just calling him sir. What he's calling him is you are God. You are the Christ. Commentators say that this is the hinge point of Saul's conversion. This is when he finally gets it. He shows recognition. He assents to who Jesus is, but not just recognition, but resignation. When he asks the question, what should I do? And the question that he is asking is the same question all of us should ask. If you recognize Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what would it look like if each of us every day asked the question, what is it that you want from me, God? Maybe that's a practice that you need to instill is every single morning, get down on your knees and ask yourself the question. Ask God the question, Lord, what is it that you want of me today? Because that is what resignation looks like in faithful believers. And so here's what God calls them to do. Rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Don't you guys know what that's like? To have the same exact experience as someone else but two completely different takeaways. This happens about a third of the time I watch movies with my wife. We're watching this movie and I am so into it. And it's just so emotional. I'm loving it. And it is the most incredible movie I've ever seen. And then the credits roll and I turn to my wife and say, what did you think of that? And she's like, it was okay. I'm like, okay, it was incredible. You not, are you watching the same movie as me? And that's how we can feel sometimes. We can read the same books, we can hear the same sermons, we can encounter the same questions. And some people just hear a noise. But what others of us hear is the voice of God. That's what Saul experienced that day. And it says, Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He's blind. You see, Jesus was taking him and showing him, this is what your spiritual state was. You were blind, and I'm going to make it physical for you so you can understand who you were apart from me. And so his men led him by this hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Take us to verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. 
You see that response all throughout Scripture of people who are ready and willing to serve the Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man. And so this is a different Judas than most of you are thinking about, because Judas, of course, is dead. Um, This is just another guy named Judas who's probably bummed that he has that name now. Um, And so looking for a man, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias who is coming in and laying his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, um, I have heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Let me ask you this, how would you respond if you were Ananias and God asked you to go do this? Because what does Saul do? He kills Christians. What is Ananias? A Christian. So imagine God asks you to go to Saul and he says, hey, Go meet with him. By the way, do it one-on-one. And when you get there, close your eyes. You know, most of us are going to be like, um, I'll pass, right? I don't know if you get the Hebrew newspaper up there in heaven, Lord, but there's some things that are going on with this guy that you might not have heard about, and so it's probably not the most wise thing for me to go do that, right? But here's the thing. Sometimes God is going to call us to do things that don't make sense to us. And is, are Ananias' fears grounded in reality? Yes, they are. Not everything that God calls us to do is going to make sense to us. But we know that as God calls us to do things in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our questions, he's going to lead us towards obedience with grace and patience because that's the kind of God he is. That's the father that he is to us. He's asking Ananias and he's asking us, hey, would you live by faith and not by sight? Would you trust in me? But here's another good question. Why does God use Ananias at all? Why does he bring him into this messy situation, right? Why couldn't he just have had Jesus do this on the Damascus road when he's already talking to them? Well, the third big idea that God has for us here today is that God invites us into his work. Jesus delights to bring his people into his purposes. He loves using them to bring about the things that he wants to see happen. He's using Ananias to teach him what it means to obey and be faithful to Jesus in spite of fears. God brings other people along to invest in people, to pour into them because he loves using them for his purposes. And so we can never underestimate the power that we personally can have in the lives of other people. Verse 15, he says, but Lord, The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I just want to have a quick word on suffering here. Paul is going to go from the one who caused a great amount of suffering into the church to the one who is going to suffer the most for the church. But suffering is not just a divine appointment for Saul. Suffering is a divine appointment for each and every believer. All believers will experience suffering. And I know that we do not like this idea because in America we try to get rid of every ounce of suffering that we could ever experience. But that simply just does not go away when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. All of us are going to experience ordinary suffering because we live in a broken and fallen world. So we're going to experience sickness. We're going to experience death. We feel that very weightily right now at this moment in time, many of us with the fear of everything that's going around with the coronavirus. We still have to experience and deal with the consequences of sin, whether it's other people or our own. 
But there's also a special kind of Christian suffering that we will experience as well when we are obedient and faithful to following Jesus Christ. But here's what we need to know. Whenever we go through times of suffering, it's not because God is punishing you. God is not saying, I'm going to make Saul suffer because of all the bad things that he did. Because we believe that any punishment that we deserved, Jesus already took and paid for it on the cross for us. And so we can know that when we go through suffering, God is using it for our good in some way. Maybe he's using it to help us look more like Jesus Christ. Maybe he's using it to help bring about his purposes and his plans for his kingdom. And so we should never seek out suffering, but it's something that we should be able to accept because we know that God is using it. And we believe that the greatest act of suffering that ever happened was also for our greatest good. Because when Jesus suffered on the cross for us, he brought us salvation and life with God. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, hear this, what does he say? Brother Saul, and this is beautiful, because Ananias immediately affirms and encourages him. And I know that sometimes this is the opposite of what we can do in our lives. Sometimes, you know, I think the best example of this was when Kanye West came to faith in Jesus Christ and says, I'm a Christian. And the first reactions from a lot of people that I saw, including myself, were them saying, yeah, let's just wait and see. Let's see if this, this kind of pans out. Let's see how long this lasts. And we take this cynical approach to people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but we need to learn from Ananias. Even when we doubt, we can go and we can say, instead of let's wait and see, we can say, brother or sister, and we can celebrate them. And instead of questioning them, we can invest in them and show them what it looks like to be a faithful son or daughter of Jesus Christ. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And here's the interesting thing. That's the last time we ever hear of Ananias. We never see him again, apart from testimonies that Paul shares of how he came to Christ. Ananias is one of the many unsung heroes in the Bible. And though he's only briefly mentioned once, his faithful, obedient ministry profoundly impacted the history of the world. Because of what he did in Christ, Saul went from the guy who was trying to stomp out the gospel to the guy who was willing to die for the gospel. And here's the truth. Behind many well-known servants of God are lesser-known believers who have influenced them. I just want to tell you about two. There's a man named Edward Kimball who was a simple shoe salesman, but he also volunteered at his church in the Sunday school. And one of the young men that he ended up investing in went by the name of D.L. Moody. And because of Edward Kimball's impact in his life, he went on to become one of the greatest evangelists of all time, and thousands upon thousands of people gave their lives to Christ because of Edward Kimball's service. Or how about Robert Eaglin, who was an ordinary, uneducated man who showed up for church one snowy Sunday, and by chance, the, the preacher got snowed out. He didn't show up. And so people were there waiting to hear from the word of God, and Robert said, well, someone's got to do it. So he gets up and stands in the pulpit and begins to preach, even though he's never done it before. And just by chance, there happens to be a young man who showed up for the first time at that church by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And as a result of that sermon from Robert, he gave his life to Christ and went on to impact millions. God is calling each of us, you and me, to go and invest in other people because here's the truth. You never know what God might do through the people that you pour your life into. That's a beautiful thought. 
thinking about all the ways that we can be impacting generation after generation because of our faithful obedience. And just some of the ways you can do that at Two Cities Church. You can do that in our kids' ministry. One of the greatest opportunities is right next door to us with kids, hundreds of them, who can go on and live their lives for Christ doing great things. Or maybe you do it for a student ministry. We've got dozens of teenagers in high school and middle school who will soon be leaving the home, and we need to invest in them so that when they leave, they are living on fire for Christ. Or maybe you do that for college students. And think about how can I invest in someone over four years so that when they go to all different sectors around the world, they can go with intentionality and how can I live for Christ? Because that's what people do who understand that Christ invites us and loves using us for his purposes in his work. And the last main idea is this. God calls us to be disciples, not converts. Acts 9.18 says, Then Saul rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all the people who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Here's five things we learned from Paul, that he moves on from being just a convert and goes to being a disciple. Here's five things that we learn from him. And this is true for us. No matter if you've been following Christ for five hours or 50 years, these are things that all of us are called to live out. Number one, disciples publicly identify with Christ. Read verse 18. It says, then he rose and was baptized. This is not something that Saul is going to keep quiet. This baptism that he had would have been, like here at Two Cities Church, it would have been very public. And no guilt, shame, or fear was going to hold him back. If there was any reason that got to use that as an excuse, it would have been Saul. But he says, you know what? Jesus has far overcome all of those things in transforming my life, and I cannot keep this quiet. And so for some of you, maybe you've become a Christian, maybe you were converted, you got saved, but you've never taken the step of obedience to publicly identify with Christ through baptism. And here's what we would say to you today. Reach out to us this week because we want to help you take that step in obedience so that we can celebrate you publicly identifying with Christ. And if you've been baptized, the same call is true for us. We are all called to publicly identify with Christ where we live, learn, work, and play. And here's what that means. It shouldn't take your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, months or even years to find out the most important thing about you. So disciples publicly identify with Christ. Number two, we obey what Christ has called us to do. Verse 18 says, Saul rose and was baptized. So same passage, different point. Not only is Saul publicly identifying with Christ, but he's acting in obedience to what God has called him to do. He likely knew the command that Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended to heaven. In Matthew 28, when he said, go, make disciples, and be baptized. Saul knew right away that followers of Jesus make a habit of doing what Jesus demands of us. And so what is Jesus demanding of you? What is he saying to you today in scripture that you are reading over, but now he's telling you, what would it look like for you to apply this in your life now? What is he telling you in his word? Or what is he telling you through his people? Whether it's a pastor here on stage or someone in your community group and DNA group who's calling you up and saying, live like Christ, live for Christ. How can you do what he has called you to do? Because God gets more excited when we stop just cross-stitching Bible verses on our pillows and posting them on our Instagram account and actually start doing them. Disciples do what Jesus called us to do. Number three, we take steps to grow in maturity. 
Verse 18 says, then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Verse 22, but Paul increased all the more in strength. Biblical scholars say, hey, this is not talking about uh, you know, physical strength, although I'm sure a sandwich helped him after three days of not eating. What they're talking about is he grew in spiritual strength. Another word for that is maturity. And we believe that Jesus is calling every Christian to continually make a lifelong journey of maturing in their faith. And the best way that we can do that to mature in our faith is by practicing spiritual disciplines on a daily and weekly basis. And here's just a few things that you can work on incorporating in your life as spiritual disciplines. Lifeway did a study over 10 years asking the question, what's the most important spiritual discipline for maturity? And what they found was this, that it was scriptural engagement. Now that's different from scriptural reading. Scriptural reading is just reading through the passage and then you're done. But engagement is reading through it and then stopping to ask it questions, to mull it over, to pray over it, and then maybe take something from it and saying, how can I apply this in my life right now? That's what it looks like for you to do scriptural engagement in your life. Maybe it's just going deeper in prayer. Maybe it's practicing silence and solitude. One of the reasons I think the church has become so ineffective today is because we are so distracted all the time. What would it look like for you to just get away for a little bit in silence and take some time to sit and listen to what God is saying to you? What is he asking you to do? Where is he calling you to go? So you can practice that. You can also take a hint from Paul and try fasting. Fasting from food or something else helps us to focus on God and increase our hunger for him instead. Or maybe a spiritual discipline that you need to grow in is just worshiping. Maybe you need to prioritize coming and worshiping with the church. If you're in town, would you make a point to be here? Because God loves to meet us in worship. And so he calls us to grow as disciples. Number four, we live in Christian community. For some days, it says Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. We see Saul immediately plugs into Christian community. He doesn't just need an open Bible. He says he recognizes he needs open lives. We all need people who love Christ and love us, who are going to be able to come around us and disciple us and care for us and encourage us and call us up and hold us accountable and put us, point us back to Christ when we go astray. And this isn't just for new believers. This is for everybody. Paul, his entire life, was in Christian community the rest of his life long. And it's the same for us. We need that because it's what God saved us for. He made us for it, and that's where we flourish the most. And so for some of you, the step that you need to take for this is to get plugged into a community group here at Two Cities Church. What you need to do this week is go online and sign up for the Weekender because that's how you get plugged into community. And for those of you who are in community, here's what you get to do prioritize it. Put it on your calendar and say, this is immovable. This is something that I am going to always make the time for because it's that important to me. And invest in it. Invest in the people that God's called us to. And lastly, God tells us that we as disciples are to tell other people about Jesus. In verse 20, he says, immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Saul was so excited about what Christ had done in his life. He had such a joy in his salvation, he couldn't hold it back. It was like a bottle of Coke being shook up. The pressure builds and builds and builds, and it just has to let out. That's what Saul did. And here's how he did it. He went in the synagogue saying he's the son of God, and all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? And here's what Saul got to do. He said, yes, that is who I was, but here's who I am now. Let me tell you about what Jesus Christ has done in my life. 
And we get to share our testimony. That's one of the ways that we tell people about Jesus. But we also see Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Another way we can tell people about Jesus is pointing them to Scripture and saying, let me, tell, let me show you who Jesus is. Let me tell you the gospel. And as we do this, we can see more and more people come to faith in Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so as we close, no matter where you're at, wherever you are right now, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? And I just want to take a moment to just reflect and respond on what God has to say through us, through this story, the conversion of Saul. And let's start with the believers. And if you're a part of the church, maybe you need to ask yourself this question. Who is God calling you to pray for? Who is someone who is far from God that God is saying, I want you to just invest in praying for this person each day, no matter how long it takes? Or maybe, who is God calling you to pour into and invest your life in? Who is your Saul? How can God use that person for years and years to come? How is God calling you to grow as a disciple? What's one step that you can take in obedience this week? Let me talk to you, the unbeliever, for a second now too. I believe that God has this message for you today because he wants you to understand that he is pursuing you right now. He's been pursuing you all of your life. Do you believe that Jesus can save you? Do you believe that he can use you, that he has a purpose for you? Because Jesus is standing here right now. This moment right here is your Damascus Road. Jesus wants to receive you. That's why he has you watching this message today. Because today you can believe and you can receive that. You can understand and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I would say, pray to him right now. Pray to him what Saul said. Lord, what would you have me do? And we would have you call us at the church. Talk to a friend or family member who loves Jesus and take your next step in the relationship that Jesus Christ wants with you. Pray with me. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the example of Saul of Tarsus. God, all of us can look at a time in our life when we were Saul, but by God's grace and grace alone, we can be made new, new creatures. We just thank you for that grace that we didn't deserve. We thank you for inviting us into the work that you were doing. And so we pray for those who, who need to hear that for the first time, God, that they would take that step and put their faith in you. But as Christians, Lord, we would hear that and we would be challenged and encouraged to go and invest and live our lives on mission for you, investing our lives in others for your name and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.